that Solomon the king wrote, known in Jewish literature as, as one of the wisest men that ever lived, the book of Kehelis, the book of Ecclesiastes, is most probably the most challenging of all. It's so challenging that the Talmud tells us that at first glance, when our sages looked at the writings of Solomon the king, they were tempted to bury them. Because Solomon the king spoke the truth, and he spoke the truth in such sharp and biting ways that the sages felt that many of his things could be misinterpreted as giving a person a very down approach to life in general. We're going to see this evening that very early on in tonight, every week we'll try to do an overview of one chapter. In the very first verses of the first chapter, Solomon the king makes a statement, My Yisrael what does man have for all of the work that he does in this world? And our sages were very upset with this saying because it would almost suggest that no matter what kind of work people do, it doesn't add up to anything. Now, you can't really say that about every kind of work that man engages in. I mean, there are a lot of things that we engage in that are non-productive and are spinning our wheels, but there are things that we can do that are, could be very productive and help us grow. So how can you just make a blanket statement, my Yisrael what will man gain from everything that he works at? And Bikshu Ligno Sefer Kahalas, they wanted to they wanted to put away the book of Kahalas because it would be misinterpreted. And it really required a judgment on the on the part of our sages, not questioning Solomon the king's wisdom or what his real intent was, was what was this book one that man could digest and be able to grow from, or would man be, so to speak, more put off by the book than be able to grow from it? And it was that concern that our sages had that they were tempted to put the book away. It's a wonderful book, you know, but it's like the doctor that'll have a successful operation, but the patient will die. In the end, the sum total was that they felt that we do have the wherewithal to learn the book and to be able to gain from the book. But it's not to say that it isn't a difficult book to be able to unravel and to make sense of and to be able to use in a productive way rather than become depressed from. So what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight each chapter central points of each chapter. I will quote the verses from which these highlights come from. We'll discuss them a little bit. We'll bring out the ideas a little bit. And then we'll have questions to try to develop it. And I must say quite honestly that this is a project that I've never done in a teaching capacity yet. So we're both at it for the first time. So bear with me and I'll bear with you. <clears throat> Solomon the king begins the book of Ecclesiastes with the words, Divrei Koheles ben David Melech Yerushalayim. These are the words, and sometimes the harsh words, of Koheles, which is an adjective or a, another name, a pen name, 
for Solomon the king. Why the word Kehelis is a pen name for Solomon the king, there are many reasons that are given that Solomon the king accumulated from many, many different books and from many different life experiences, wisdom. The word callous meaning an accumulation of wisdom. You know, you have people that are self-proclaimed philosophers and wise people that they render their opinions from pure nothingness. You know, they sit back and they just shoot out in the sky. And Solomon the king wants to say that I have a lot to say and it's going to be stuff that's not going to be easy to hear, but I want you to know that I did the research. I did my homework. Divro Kahelis. The wisdom that I'm going to express is going to be the theme that comes forth from the accumulation of all available wisdom on the subject. This is the first thing that Solomon the king says. And Rashi, I'll just quote them, it's not important who the commentaries are unless you're, you know, an advanced scholar here, but just for the sake of knowing where things come from if you want to look them up later. Rashi tells us that wherever the word divre is used, it means that you better get ready to get it. In other words, you better get ready to hear something that's hard to listen to, but something that's important to listen to. Something that is referred to in the Hebrew language as tochacha. Tochacha literally means reprimand, but on a deeper level, tochacha means to show up the truth of an issue. And in showing up the truth of the issue is the greatest pain to the person that wanted to avoid seeing the truth or is living inconsistent with, with the truth that has just been shown up. You know, you can go over to a person and reprimand a person and without proving anything to the person, just tell the person, you're wrong. But that's not really the way that you get a person to really move ahead. The real way to get a, a person to move ahead is bring all the information to the person that by the end of your presentation, he's able to say that everything that you've presented to me proves to me that I was under the wrong assumptions or not in contact with reality. And when a person unequivocally comes to realize that he's operated out of not in reality, that is reprimand. That is the, the strongest way and maybe the most constructive way if a person is mature to be able to confront the fact that they have to change their perspective. Now, Rashi tells us immediately that there are three things in this chapter that Solomon the king speaks about in the form of analogy. He speaks about the sun, the power of the sun. He speaks also he also speaks about the concept of the different rivers of waters that spill into the great oceans. This is the second thing that he speaks of. And various other forms of nature the cycles of nature, the seasons of nature, and so on and so forth. These are the three things. And Rashi says that Solomon the king compares the wicked person, the person that doesn't have any quality in his lifestyle, Solomon the king compares the wicked person to the sun. 
Now, that seems to be pretty awkward. That seems to be a very awkward kind of an idea. But Rashi says that Solomon the king does it for a very specific reason. A very specific reason. Why? Because on the one hand, the sun seems to be a tremendously powerful thing, shedding tremendous light, being responsible for the welfare of much of what the world operates on, certainly agriculturally, in climate, and so on and so forth. But the reality is, Rashi says, that every sun has its setting. A sun rises, but a sun sets. And Rashi says that it's in that way that Solomon the king wants to say that a person that doesn't have quality in his life might have some very shiny years in life, very brilliant years, very powerful years, but don't get fooled by it. Even the sun sets. And in that sense, the, a person that doesn't live life with quality in it as successful as a streak as he might seem to be having in life, sooner or later it has to come to an end. This is one idea. Moving ahead, Rashi says, and then there's the comparison of the person that doesn't have quality in his life to the ocean, moving back and forth and, not, and never being still, never being at peace, suggesting that while the person without quality in his life might think to himself that he has tremendous freedoms and he can experience everything, but in a certain sense he's missing a basic, basic human need to be at rest, to be at some kind of an inner peace. And finally, the comparison of the person that doesn't have quality in his life to the rivers that pour into the oceans, but the oceans never seem to overflow and people begin to think, hey, the, the ocean must have some mystical, cabalistic power to it that all of these waters pour into the oceans and the oceans never overflow. And the whole thing is ridiculous because the reality is, is that there is a cycle. The rivers flow into the oceans and then the oceans feed back into the rivers and all it is is a cycle. But there is no real metaphysical power of why the ocean doesn't overflow and so on and so forth, which is something that we can't get into in particular if we would be learning it verse by verse. We'd get into it in a more specific way. But the point being that sometimes we're overwhelmed with the continuity of forces of nature and we attribute to forces of nature some kind of independent godly power, not recognizing that very often what seems to be unexplainable forces of nature are nothing more than cycles that, that feed themselves. The reason why the ocean never overflows is very simple because the water that flows into the ocean has its way naturally to flow back into the rivers in the different ways. It evaporates, it falls down into its rain, it goes back into the rivers, it goes back into the oceans, whatever have you. Now I'm not going to get into this very deeply, but the point of this is as follows. The point of the, all of this is as follows. The first thing that Solomon the king is throwing out at us is the idea, the idea that man has to confront what we refer to in Hebrew as the koach hadimyon, the force of imagination 
or better said, the ability to buy into illusion and to be able to accept and to be able to see illusion and to digest it as fact, to digest it as reality. Now this is a very interesting thing because all of these different things that Solomon the King is speaking about, they are very beautiful and very powerful things. The sun is a beautiful, powerful thing. The oceans are beautiful, powerful things. The rivers flowing into the oceans and the oceans eventually feeding back into the rivers are very beautiful and powerful things. It's not that we're not dealing with big things. That we, it's not that we're not dealing with impressive things. It's not that we're not dealing with things that God has given tremendous energy to dictate much of what goes on in the world to. In other words, the reason why we can attribute real power to these things and believe in them is not because, is because they do have energy to them. In other words, we wouldn't make something that's really not real and think that it's real if it would have no value or any beauty or power. It's because it has so much power and it has so much beauty that man can fall into the trap of seeing it as reality when it really isn't. And that's also quite true, Solomon the King says, of life in general. A person can go through a period of life where everything is brilliant, where everything is powerful, where everything seems to be flowing continuously without stop. Everything is working like clockwork. And a person begins to build a sense of, of his own realness and so on and so forth and realness to life and believing in the context of the life that he's living in only because it's working so powerfully and so beautifully. So Solomon the king says the only thing or one of the things that can thwart this connection to illusion is ask yourself in the spectrum of life how long will it last? In other words, if it would have eternity to it, in other words, if it would have true continuity to it, so then one would be more tempted and would, it would be more legitimate to attribute reality to it. But if you can look at something brilliant and say, sooner or later it's going to wane and die, you have to wonder to yourself how real it is to begin with. So the first thing that Solomon the King is introducing over here is that one form by which we can discriminate between what is really ultimately illusion and what is reality is does it have eternal quality to it or will it slowly disintegrate and disappear? If you're talking about anything that slowly has to weaken and disappear and it won't be as brilliant, it won't be as successful, so then the only reason why that happens is because to begin with it's deficient. Something that's whole and, and really real in substance will not disintegrate and disappear. It will have an eternal quality to it. Now, this is a very... We'll take questions at the end. Jot them down as you're going along. This is a, this is a, this is a very interesting concept. It's a very interesting concept because basically I could say it very simply, I could say it this way. I could say that what Solomon the King is saying is don't, don't attribute value to things until you see the whole lifespan of it, which is a very mechanical definition. Right? Wait, don't be so quick to attribute such quality to, to, to something. See its, see its longevity, see its, 
see its life cycle before, before you get so excited about something. That would be the mechanical way of defining what Solomon the king is saying. On a deeper level, what Solomon the king is basically saying is that a person has to ask himself, not by waiting to see, but he has to try to look ahead. Who is wise? The one that sees the future, that can look to the future, wants to see the outgrowth of things. Solomon, being the wise person, says, don't evaluate something by today. Put on your thinking cap and try to ask yourself, is this going to be valuable to me? And what will I be with it 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? Will it add up to making me a different person and so on and so forth or not? Now, here we come to a very interesting idea. Okay? I'm trying to mo move a little bit as I'm going along here. We come to a very interesting idea. There are three basic things. There are three basic things that are essentially, inherently, very beautiful things, and no person should write himself off from pursuing them in life. Really, there are three. There is Chachma, there is wisdom, there is Gevura, there is power, and there is Osher, all right? and there is wealth. Chachma, Osher, and Gevura. And the prophet tells us an interesting thing about these three things, wisdom, power, and wealth. The wise person shouldn't brag about his intelligence and the strong person shouldn't brag about his strength and so on and so forth. If he can utilize his wisdom to know me, if he can use his power to exercise self-discipline, not to destroy his relationship with me, and if he can use his wealth to serve me, so then chachma osher and then wisdom, power, and wealth are beautiful qualities. What is, Solomon, what, what is the prophet saying? There are in the world some very powerful and beautiful things, but we can't get caught up in just saying, oh, they're powerful and beautiful and I want them, and not qualify them. They need to be qualified. Or to say it West Coast style, they need to be channeled. Wisdom is, is a beautiful quality, power is a beautiful quality, and so is wealth. But they need to be channeled. Now, what very often happens is that I see each one of these things in its raw form without the maturity of channeling it, and I get caught up in it, and it talks to me, and it speaks to me, and it tells me, have me, grab me, pursue me in life, but without the qualifications of how to channel it and how to use it. <clears throat> so another quality in illusion, in other words, the quality that contributes to our falling into the traps of illusion is because there is substance to many of the things that we become attached to. But we don't know how to apply it and how to channel it correctly. Now, the commentaries say that if you look at the first verse of Ecclesiastes, what does it say? It says, Divrei Kohelis, Ben David, Melech B'Yerushalayim. These are the words of Kohelis, 
the one that accumulated what? Lots of wisdom. Ben David, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. So Solomon is referring to himself in this first verse in three ways. He's Kohelis, he's the son of David, and he's the king of Jerusalem. What are these three definitions? So the commentaries explain Kohelis is a symbolism of wisdom because he accumulated wisdom. The son of David means because David, by the time his lifetime was over, worked out the self-disciplines of being in total control. He had rocky moments in his life, but his life was dedicated to ultimately coming into total control of all of his inclinations. And Melech, the Yerushalayim, refers to a king's wealth. So King David says, I had them all. I had the opportunities to taste wisdom. I had the opportunity and I had the spiritual strength to, from my father's rearing to develop vura, power. And I also had all of the wealth that a person could possibly want because I was the king of Jerusalem. So King David is saying that when I am now going to, to start dispelling what is illusion from what is reality, I want you to know that I'm coming from a place that I can speak on all three subjects, I can speak about how to define illusion, the illusion of wisdom and the realities of wisdom. I can speak about the illusions of power and what are the realities of power. In other words, what are the qu true qualities of power and so in wealth as well. I come from a position of being able to speak about all three. This is what the commentaries say. Now, there is yet one more thing that I'd like to add on over here, which all of the commentaries say in different ways, and that is that we know that in the second verse, Solomon the king is going to say, Havel Havalim Hakoel Havel. It's all empty, it's all nothing, it's all a lot of hot air. And King David says it in the, seventh, in the second verse seven times. Havel Havalim. Havel is one. Havalim, the minimum of the plural is two, is three. Havel Havalim a second time is six. And then he finally sums it up just in case you didn't get the message yet. Hakol Havel. Bottom line, it's all emptiness. It's all emptiness. So King David, so Solomon the king is coming pretty powerfully over here. He's saying, you know, running after wisdom, running after power, running after wealth. You want to know what it all adds up to if it's not qualified and channeled correctly? It all adds up to a lot of hot air. That's how, king, that's how Solomon the king you know, presents, okay, presents himself in saying this. Now, When Solomon the king says in the second verse that everything is Hevel, okay, he uses he says it so many times. You know, he says it so many times. Havel Havalim, Havel Havalim, Hakoil Havel. And unfortunately, an overview doesn't allow me to go into defining why it's seven different times. Right? But one thing I would like to say, one thing that the commentaries say is which is very interesting. The commentaries say like this. Anything, listen carefully, the Sepharna says this interpretation of what Hevel is. What is Hevel? So it's a phenomenal definition. He says like this, I'll tell you what Hevel is. Hevel is one of two things. 
It is when there is a real brand new phenomena on the scene, but it goes no place. That we refer to as Hevel. In other words, something that doesn't have, have any razzle-dazzle and doesn't attract any attention to it, that's not Hevel. Because I'm not attracted to it to begin with. I don't believe in it so much to begin with anyhow. So it's not real Hevel. You know what real Hevel is? Something that appears like, ooh, it's a big to, it's a big to do. And then when you get to the bottom of it, it's nothing. Hevel means something that blows itself up, appears to be wonderful and great, and then when you finally come around to realizing if it has any substance, it's just a lot of hot air. We find people like that. Right? So the Sephardi says the concept of, of Hevel, the concept of Hevel is where there is a spurt of, of newness, there's a spurt of razzle-dazzle, and then when you come around to the bottom line, you wonder to yourself, for this, they have to be a, this had to be new. It's all the same old garbage. It's just blown up to look like something, but it's the same old garbage. Now, what does the Sephardi mean by this? What difference does it make how a person comes to realize that something is nonsense? What the Sephardi is trying to suggest to us is that one of the ways that we fall into the trap of illusion is that we right away get caught up with something because it's new. If it's new, it must be good because it's new. If it's a style, if it's a way of life, it's a way of thinking, we very often fall into the trap of believing in it, even though it's nothing, only because it's new. And we say, ah, if it's new, it must be announcing something important. So that's a trapping. So what is Solomon King trying to say? Don't fall head over heels just because something is new. Because you very often things that are new are very disappointing when you get to the bottom. When you get to the bottom of what's behind it. That's number one. The second thing that Solomon... Another thing that Sephardi says is Hevel is when you employ very, very sophisticated techniques and very beautiful techniques to get to something that in the end is me a meaningless invention. That's also Hevel. In other words, because of a lot of energy is put into something, and sophisticated energy, right, people believe in it. Oh, it must be something. If this yo-yo is doing it, and Yen is doing it, and this one spent so much time with it, and so, oh, it must be real. Yeah. So, so he says, no, 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 that's another disappointment. In other words, what Solomon the king is basically saying, don't become attracted to something and fall head over heels because it's new, and don't become attracted to it just because of the people or the time that became attached to producing it. Those things don't automatically tell you that it has substance. Very often those things crash when you find out what they're really all about. And again, what is Solomon the king trying to acclimate us to? What he's trying to acclimate us to is that there are many, many different ways that we fall into the trap of accepting something that is really only an illusion and accepting it as reality. That's basically how Solomon the King is starting. Now, another idea that comes up over here, if you'll take notes, you'll see that there's a, there's a basic theme that's slowly developing over here. The pursuit of being able to discriminate between illusion and reality. Recognizing all of the tricks of the world of illusion 
Okay? And hopefully Solomon King will also teach us how to recognize reality, not only to recognize the traps of illusion. But there's something that anybody that reads Kehelis is, is a little bit put off. In that second verse, when Solomon the king says, Havel, Havelim, everything is hot here, everything's hot here, it's all hot here. We have a little bit put back. Hey, Solomon King, come on, don't bury the whole world. Calm down, take it easy. Why are you so cynical? Why are you so biting? So the commentaries say an interesting thing. The commentaries say that it is important in a world of falseness to have a certain measure of, of criticism. The person that walks around with rosy, you know, with rosy pictures of everything and, never, and will never say a harsh or critical word about anything will fall prey to the neon lights of, of all kinds of illusions. Solomon the king says, you've got to be a critical person. You don't have to be a negative person, but you have to be a critical person. Right? Because if you're not a critical person, there is so much out there that presents itself as true, that is utterly false, that you won't be able to see through it. And therefore, Solomon the king says, no, I am going to feel free to say exactly what I feel. Okay? Because if a person doesn't feel free to say what he feels, to express his suspicion about something that appears like reality but isn't reality, slowly it will, it will convince him that it's true. You know, sometimes people come to me, you know, and they're living in difficult family situations or di all kinds of different situations and everybody around them is telling them that they're wrong and that they're crazy. You know? And they're basically convinced that they're right. Okay, and I always love it when the right people come to me instead of the wrong people. But the right ones come to me and they say, listen, I'm just coming to ask you because, you know, I'm around Meshigas for so long that I'm getting suspicious that maybe they're talking right and I'm wrong. And I'm sure we've all felt that sometimes, you know. If you're around it long enough, you begin to wonder, hey, maybe I'm the one that's out of contact. You know, and many people have left my office, phew, you relieved me. You know, Baruch Hashem, I thought that I was right, but I couldn't be sure anymore, and you told me, you confirmed it for me. What are we saying? If you're long enough in an environment that you don't speak out against, the environment will slowly suck you in. So Solomon the king is now giving me the first technique on how I have to fight illusion. You have to be outspoken about something that's not true. If you just stay respectfully quiet and you let everybody say his shtick and make everything appear true and you say, I'm not going to fight, he has his opinion, I have my opinion. If you shut up and you never say anything about what's false and what's not reality, slowly it will erode your sense and your appreciation of what reality and illusion is. And that's a very, very important thing. We live in a society that teaches tolerance, which is a very important thing. But you have to be careful that you don't lose your principles in the process. There are times that you need to speak out. And if you don't speak out, slowly but surely, you lose contact with what's really true and what's not true anymore. You hit a junk long enough and you never spoke out against it. You start believing it yourself. <clears throat> now, 
I mentioned before, I just want to touch on one last point and then we're going to move ahead to some more interesting ideas here. I mentioned before that Solomon the King identifies three basic qualities that are in fact beautiful things, but the question is, do you just get hooked on them because they're beautiful things? Or do you look at them and make sure to channel them in where they need to be expressed? Wisdom, power, and wealth. Now, there is a difference in the commentaries in terms of what I'm going to say now. Right? So it's not something that everybody agrees on, so to speak. But it's it is provocative enough that we need to at least listen to it. Because if any commentary can say it, it's something that's worthwhile to be cautious about. <coughs> the one of, our, one of the commentaries, the Mitsudis David, says an interesting thing. There's two ways that Solomon the king refers to Har'ir. One way that he refers to Har'ir is he says, Havel Havalim. And how many times does he say that? He says it twice. Havel Havalim, Havel Havalim. And then it comes, and then he expresses Har'ir in another way. He says, Hakol Havel, it's all empty. So the commentaries are disturbed by this. I'm not going to get into the number seven. I'm just going to get into why sometimes Solomon the king says, Havel Havalim, the Harir of Harir, and sometimes he says, bottom line, it's all Havel. What's the difference? So the Mitzudah's David explains it like this. He says, Chachma, wisdom and power, you have no right to call it complete emptiness. You don't have a right. It depends how you use it. So therefore, Havel Havalim, you can make Havel out of it. But it's not utter Havel. Wisdom has a place. There are many wisdoms. There are many, there are many tremendous things that wisdom has contributed to society. How dare you say that there's nothing to wisdom? How dare you say that there is nothing to power? Power exercised correctly is a tremendously beautiful thing. So therefore, when it comes to Chachma, when it comes to wisdom, and when it comes to power, Solomon says, Havel Havolim, there is Harir in it, but it's not total Harir. However, when it comes to wealth, Solomon the king says, the track record of wealth in the world is unfortunately bottom line, Hakel Havol. It's utter emptiness. Now, what does this mean? A very troubling kind of a thing. What is this supposed to mean? So, Solomon the king, the, the commentary explains it like this. This is troublesome, but I'll try to talk my way out of it now. He says like this. He says, a person needs to understand, the Mitzvah David says, that more than anything else, wealth is an, a tremendous challenge and test to a human being much more than wisdom and power is. It is a tremendous test. The Mitzvah's David goes so far, and this is not fully agreed upon, but the Mitzvah's David makes this statement, that all wealth is given to a person to challenge and test him if he is going to be a true executor of God's resources on earth. This is the statement of the Mitzvah's David. So Solomon the king says, if a person would have a choice of being under tremendous challenge and test or being free of it, the prudent person would say to God, give me what I need and don't test me with wealth. In other words, 
Now, we might not appreciate this because we want wealth, but the person that really wants a relationship with God and doesn't want to blow his life, so he would choose the more conservative, conservative and the more secure way that he won't blow it. So the Mitzvah's David says, with Chachma and Gevura, with wisdom and power, a person doesn't sh- shouldn't shy away from those things, but th- because those things can very well be integrated into life. But if you had a choice, if God would say to you, listen, I didn't make a decision about you with what I want to give you. Choose for yourself. Do you want wealth or not? So the Mitzvah's David says, the prudent and conservative investor, if he cares about being successful in life, would say, give me what I need and keep the rest of the money. That's what the Mitzvah's David says. Right? Which is a phenomenal idea, and it's not that Solomon the king didn't have money. He, this, we're not talking about sour grapes. We're talking about a person that had everything available to him. Melech B'Yerushalayim. He was on top of the world. And Solomon the king said at the, at the end of his life, Solomon the king was able to say, bottom line, wisdom and power I can appreciate and integrate. Are you sure if I'd have to live life over again, I would give it back to God? Now, that doesn't mean that wealth is synonymous with sin. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying if, you would be, if you're playing the game of probabilities, if you're waging bets, you'll wage a healthier bet when a person isn't fabulously wealthy than when a person is. In terms of being able to live life and not get caught up in what? Get caught up in illusion. Right. Now, let's move, okay, let's move further ahead over here. In the third verse, in the thir- third verse, which I quoted before, Solomon the king says, what will man have when it's all over from all of his work under the sun? Now, there are various ways that this verse is interpreted. One way that this verse is interpreted is that a human being, listen carefully, it's a very beautiful thing, that a human being is distinctively different from every other creation of God. The human being was endowed with a tremendous spiritual potential. A tremendous spiritual dynamic. And that is what makes Yisron Ha'adam. That is what makes man distinctively different. What Solomon the king is saying is, but if a person spends his whole life working to make money, so then you have to ask yourself a question sometime in your life, why did God make me distinctively different if all I busy myself with is making money? Now, this isn't a preaching session that Solomon the king is going through. Solomon the king is saying something very, very deep here. What Solomon the king is... Excuse me? In other words, Solomon the king is saying like this. Man is distinctively different by virtue of the spiritual dynamic that he was gifted with, that God gave him. What, and if a person spends his entire life, amal, just working, working, working to make a living... So the question that has to come up is, why on earth did God bother giving me this distinctive quality? In order to, to be a person 
whose the majority of his life is only working to make a living, why did they need this distinctive quality to be put into them? So in other words, according to this interpretation, this is the way you read the verse. Ma Adam. Why did man have to be given this additional distinctive quality? If all he busies himself with is the work under the sun. Which means the work of just making a living. Now, what is Solomon the king suggesting? That we should go to work, and before we go to work we should give our souls back to God? Like, what does he want? The point of what Solomon the king is saying is like this. One of the things that has to help a person to fight illusion and to be more in contact with reality is he has to ask himself from time to time, is he selling himself short in terms of what his true potentials are? You know, we always judge everything that's out there. Is it real? Is it real? Is it worth it? Isn't it worth it? And very often, one of the most critical parts in making the decision we leave out, one of the most critical components in making a decision if something is worth it or not, is not just to see if it's inherently worth it, but to see if it's for me. You know, you go out on a date, and you decide that it's just not, it's not the kind of a person that you can live your life with. And then somebody else comes over to you, you know, I'm going out with this person that you went out with, you know, is, what kind of a person is it? So if you're unfair, you say, don't go out. No, it's a lousy person. It didn't work out with me. If you're a fair person, you say, it wasn't right for me. Now, very often in life, when we have things razzling, dazzling in front of us, we just try to determine if the thing has an inherent value, but we don't do the critical next question of saying, good, it has a razzle, dazzle, and it seems to be reality. But is it reality for me? Does it fit me? What this commentary is saying, my Yisra Ma'adam, is that a person has to ask himself the following question. In other words, in order not to fall into the trap of buying illusion as reality, always ask yourself a question. If this is reality, so then it has to have some kind of relationship to the reality of who I am. Is there any connection between this and the distinctive soul that God gave me. Is there any relationship? And if there isn't, if I buy into that, what I'm basically doing is I'm selling myself short. So what Solomon the king is saying is that another way to fight illusion is ask yourself the question, are you selling yourself short? And that's, that's the point that Solomon is making. My Yisra Ma'adam, in other words, ask yourself the question up against the distinctive quality that you know yourself to be. And mind you, this isn't only in relationship to the soul. If a person has a particular talent or a group of talents, yeah, and, and they go off and they busy themselves for the rest, rest of their life finger painting instead of, and I'm, maybe finger painting is also a talent, I'm not saying, but let's say they have a talent of, of communicating beautiful ideas and, and whatever. And they busy their life, oh, finger painting really inspires me, and they, they finger paint for the rest of their life. Right? That wasn't reality for them. They bought into illusion because in relationship to themselves they totally wasted the reality of their lives. And that's what Solomon the king is saying in this my Yisrael Adam. Now, another trapping of illusion and reality, this is a phenomenal thing. 
Another trapping of illusion and reality is like this. Listen carefully. And this is communicated in the next verse. In the next verses. The next verses speak about <clears throat> a generation goes and another generation comes right? and earth stands still. Generations come and go, but the earth is the same earth as it always was. Now, what is that supposed to mean? So the commentaries explain like this. Sometimes we make choices in life, and oh, is this so true in life? Sometimes we make choices like this. I'm not terribly excited about this thing. And I even have a sneaky suspicion that it's not reality. Right? But what can I do? I have to prepare for my children. I have to prepare for the next generation. I'm a provider. I have to worry for the next generation, etc., etc. So in other words, it's not so much that I'm excited about it in terms of what it is and what it is in the present tense, but I have to worry about the future. In other words, in other words another thing that sometimes traps a person is the worry for the future. In other words, instead of really looking at if something is right and if it's, it's really reality for themselves, what, they, what happens is that they become overcome with a sense of insecurity Will I be secure in my future? Will there be money in my future? Will, be, will there be the things that I might, might possibly need in my future? And therefore, I sell the today because of the insecurity and the worry for the tomorrow. In other words, I use the unknown tomorrow to push me into things that I might even have a sneaky suspicion underneath that if there was no tomorrow and there was only a today, I would never opt for these kinds of things. So Solomon the king says, I want you to know something. People that live in the worries of tomorrow, right, can never have a significant way of living, but you never know. There might be rainy days. You never know if you'll be able to put your kids through college. You don't know if they'll have enough if they'll be mature and if they'll be able to stand on their own feet, etc., etc. So Solomon the king says, he says, so what do you do? You basically give up a major chunk of life, a major chunk of what you know to be real, real living for yourself, right? and you think that you have a guarantee that you stash it away and your kids are going to get it. Your kids are going to get it. Well, how about the bailout of the savings and loans associations. In other words, that's the modern day example of it, but the point being that you can prepare and prepare and, and give up a lot to prepare, and then when the day comes, the money's not there for who you prepared it for. Somebody else takes it, they eliminate social security, they do this, they do that, there are many different things. So basically what Solomon the King says is, be cautious of living in the uh, of making decisions just out of the insecurity of the future when you know that you're trading off something valuable in the present because very often you don't have control of the future and when the future ultimately comes the present everything that you work to guarantee is not there anymore so be careful now that doesn't say it's not that Solomon the king is saying don't have a savings account don't get me wrong but what Solomon the king is saying is, 
You've got, in other words, in life, you have to, there are always trade-offs. To trade off something that you know today has value for a doubt and an insecurity about a future that you can't even control, that's not wise investments. But Solomon the king is saying this is one of the ways that we buy into illusion. By entering the realm of the unknown tomorrow and trying to make decisions from unknown and uncontrollable tomorrows. In other words, that's how we sell ourselves into it. Otherwise, why should a person sell themselves into it? <clears throat> now, The next verse, again, another suggestion in terms of how to fight what is illusion and to be able to see what is reality. That's what the whole first chapter is dealing with. The next verse, V'zarach Hashemesh Hashemesh, the sun rises, the sun sets. V'zarach Hashemesh Hashemesh, one second, I'm not going to be a big shot, I'll read it from me. inside instead of instead of spouting it off. And the sun always returns to the original place from where it came. Okay? Now, what on earth is this supposed to mean? Again, there's differences in the commentaries, but the one that I chose as being significant for this evening is the one that goes like this. <clears throat> you know, sometimes things are presented to us Right? And we look at them, and we can't make up our minds if they have quality, if they don't have quality. We can't make up our minds. How can we figure it out? So another thing that Solomon the King is now introducing to us is like this. When you have something in front of you that you can't figure it out, if it's phony or if it's true, if it's quality or if it's nonsense, one of the things that you should always ask yourself is, what are the origins from which this thing came? How did this evolve? Where did it come from? In other words, how did it come to be? You know, to some, you know to when, usually when you're dealing with something that you have an option to choose or not to choose, it's not that it was born today. It had a history. It had origins. You know, sometimes you see a sign for some kind of a demonstration or for some kind of a political action thing, and you don't know if it's going to produce good results or bad results, if it's well-conceived, if it's not well-conceived, if it's organized, if it's not organized, if it's going to do more harm than good. And you don't know. You don't know how to figure it out. So what do you do? So if you're a real militant, you go to everything. Yeah. But not everything is well-organized, and not everything is, 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 is necessarily productive. So how do you know if it's real or if it's not real? So one of the good ways of, uh, of finding out is you f call up the number for information and you ask which organization is putting this out. Which organization is, is, is putting this thing off. Look for origins. Why? Because an apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Period. That's it. So if you can't see the quality of the apple, you don't know if there's worms in the apple or not, 
right? And the only way to know is to stick your teeth into it and eat it, and by that time it's too late, right? So what do you need to do? Look at the origin, right? Because chances are things play themselves out to the extent of the quality or lack of quality that was in the origin. And that's what Solomon the king is saying here. The Zarach HaShemesh. The sun comes up and the sun goes down. But where does the sun ultimately go back to? Where it started off from. Which means that even if you pick something up much further down the process, know that the bottom line of everything that you pick up longer down the process will eventually return to its origin because nothing at the end of the process is going to be greater than it was in its potential origin. And that's an interesting thing, because that means that even if you don't see necessarily a negative quality in something right in front of you, but if you know that it was produced by negative people, if you know that it was produced in an atmosphere that you would never find yourself living in, be careful about getting into it. Because chances are, things that come from negative origins will usually return the people that become attached to them to those origins. Which is, it's, it's, it's a very harsh kind of thing. It's a very heavy kind of an idea. But in life, what Solomon the King is saying is, here again, you don't see it. You're seeing the product. You're not seeing the origin. In order to get out of illusion, go back to the origin. Nothing can be healthier than the origin from which it comes. Now, another technique that Solomon the King now introduces in verse 5 and 6, we're moving along here, in verse 5 and 6, is another interesting thing. Sometimes people are tempted, okay? Sometimes people are tempted to get into something because on the moment they're weak, in the moment, it's very enticing and so on and so forth and they believe in it and so on and so forth. So the Solomon the King says, I want you to do one more technique before you attach yourself to something and believing that it's real. What's another technique? Another technique would be that you try to remind yourself of the times that you attached yourself to things believing that they were wonderful and that they were the solution to all of the world's problems and how horrible you felt when you crashed and found out that the whole thing was hooey, that the whole thing was nothing. Now, what's the purpose of that? The purpose of that is that a person needs to remind themselves periodically that if they're not careful in their choices, there is pain and frustration when you get out of the trip. In other words, life is full of trips. You go on trips. But very, the trips that don't have a real basis in reality, right, they don't come to sweet, comfortable conclusions. You know, I was sure of it, and I yelled and screamed, and, and I divorced myself from a million different people believing that this was the answer to all of the world's problems. And then I have to come and eat humble pie one day and realize that the whole thing was a lot of baloney and I must have been some kind of a nincompoop that I didn't realize it along the way. 
What Solomon the king is saying is, don't get so excited about something. And if you find yourself running ahead of yourself, being excited to attach yourself to some glittering new idea, remind yourself of all of the times that you fell on your face believing something was great. In other words, people are sometimes very, very sure of themselves. So Solomon the king is saying, if you were ever sure of yourself and then found out that you were deathly wrong, so you know that in the future you could be wrong. You could be wrong again. So therefore, if you could be wrong again, in other words, that doesn't mean don't do anything, don't adopt anything, don't incorporate anything. That's not what Solomon the king is saying. But at least remind yourself of the feeling and ask yourself, don't I want to be a little bit careful because I don't want to have to go through this kind of feeling again? How many times can a person crash? How many times... So in other words, remind yourself of what it feels like to crash and ask yourself, is it really worthwhile? You know, I'll give you an example of this, one that we can all relate to. (coughs) A person gets involved in a relationship and and he's silly enough not to do healthy research as to who the person is and he gets deeply, deeply emotionally involved with the person only to realize on the day that things have to consummate in a real, in a real relationship that they haven't done major homework on major subjects and they come to realize that when it comes to making the final decision is this the partner for life or not there are major things that are missing so what happens? you can't marry the person you are totally devastated. You're destroyed as a person. Right? Now, it's only a stupid person that would repeat that a second time. But what happens if you see this wonderful guy? He glitters. He's got everything that's considered success in the Wall Street Journal. And you say, no, I'm going to go for it. Right? So Solomon the king says, before you go for it again, remember how depressed and how... Dysfunctional were you dysfunctional you were after the last relationship. In other words, use the experience of a crash in the past to be more cautious when you don't repeat stupidity. That's basically what it boils down to. And be conscious of what it feels like to crash. It's almost, it's a a sense of frustration, a sense of futility that Solomon the King is speaking about. And according to some commentaries, this is the concept of the rivers flowing into the oceans and the oceans then going back into the rivers and it going back and forth and back and forth. How would we say it in 1990? Watch out for the experiences in life that you give lots of energy and all you're doing is spinning your wheels. That's basically what Solomon the King is saying. There are things in life that we give off lots and lots of energy and it goes no place. It's like the rivers that fill the ocean, but the ocean never gets full. In other words, it's a symbolism. It's an example. Watch out for the things that require tremendous output and you're doing nothing but spinning wheels. Oh, things are moving, just like the waters are going into the ocean and from the ocean back into the rivers. Oh, there's lots of movement, but going no place. <clears throat> now, we're not going to be able to finish the chapter today. That's quite obvious, okay? And I want to take, be able to take some questions. So I'll just throw out one more idea, and then I'll gladly take questions. The next idea that Solomon the king introduces us to in, ch- in verse 8, 
as we move along over here, is the idea of living with ridiculous expectations. Right? In other words, dreaming the impossible. Right? Dreaming the impossible. Man has a tremendous capacity to become extremely inspired in fantasy land. You close your eyes and you imagine the, the, the most wonderful guy, the most wonderful girl, you know, most probably not such a being never even existed, but you're having loads of fun imagining it. Right? You know, loads of fun imagining it. Ridiculous expectation. Right? Now, how does Solomon the king express this idea of ridiculous expectation? He says it in a very, a very sharp way. He says like this. says, Kol hadvarim yegeyim. Everything in this world tires a person out. Tires a person out. And I'll explain what that means in a minute. Lo yuchal ish lo yuchal ish ladaber lo yisiz ba'ayin liras v'lo yisimaya le'ayzim lishmaya. If you set for yourself the goal to grab in the entire world, your eyes will not be able to see it all your ears will not be able to hear it all, and you will never be able to talk about it all. Now, what is Solomon the king trying to say? I'll try to put it together in a very concise form. What Solomon the king is saying is like this. If a person has ridiculous expectation of wanting tremendous amounts of things, all right, what the person basically is setting himself up to is number one, being disappointed because he won't be able to get it all. But on a deeper level, Solomon the king is saying something else. There is a philosophy out there, don't ask me where it comes from, but there is a philosophy out, of there, out, out there in the world that says that the spark and the spunk of life is to always desire, to always want. And Solomon the king says that it's a tremendous mistake. Because the person that sets himself up, okay, now that I have this, what's the next thing to want? And now that I have this, what's the next thing to want? And now that I have this, what's the next thing to want? Solomon the king says setting yourself up in that mode is basically setting yourself up in a mode that you will always be hungry for something. Now, for a while, a person can deal with being hungry and always looking to be satisfied. But, you know, it, a person sooner or later gets tired of always trying to satiate hunger. When, you, when we're still young and we still have strength and we still have spunk to us, it's exciting to always be hungry and always to be filling hungers, only to find out that a day later we're hungry for something else. But Solomon the king says, but if you live life, you'll come to realize that at a certain point you get tired of the cycle of always wanting to satiate hungers. <clears throat> that's a very, very powerful thing. And that's what Solomon the king means when he says, Kol hadvarim yegeim. Bottom line, if you set yourself up that the, that the essence of life is always to desire, you might be strong, healthy, and youthful to live that way. But sooner or later, it's going to beat you up. It's just going to spend your energy. And it's, going to be, it's just going to wear you down. 
And this is, I don't think I have to explain it more than that. I think that we all, I think we can all feel that, okay? And so why is Solomon the king saying this? Solomon the king is saying this for one specific reason. That is exciting as it seems in my mind to aspire to have everything. It's illusion because in the end you're a spent, beat up person from always running to satiate hungers. So don't make for yourself ridiculous. In other words, it's be- energy is better spent in learning how to be happy with what you have than directing energy to the things that you don't have. That's basically... And if you go through everything, I, I haven't been keeping notes of this, all right? but if you go through it, basically what Solomon the king is throwing out to us in this chapter up to verse 9... The chapter is about 15 verses. There goes my planning sheet. But, but, but what Solomon the king is basically throwing out at us is all of the common trappings, how to be cautious about them, and some of the stuff that we can do not to fall, not to fall into them. Now, what we'll deal with the next time we get together, just as a, you know, a preview of the next class, what we'll deal with in the next class is we're going to get into is Solomon the King totally destroying the concept of looking to the future? Is Solomon the King basically saying be suspicious of desiring better? Is he saying that expectation, future, the glorious tomorrow... Like that, that whole mentality is not worth. It's it's not really worth. It's not worth it. Just live the present. That's what it sounds like. Solomon the king saying is, you know, always trying to project, always looking at the but, the glorious tomorrow and things like that. That's dangerous stuff, right? So it almost seems like Solomon the king is saying that a person has to live in present, okay, and has no basis to live in terms of future. Now. That, to say that, is a major problem in, in, theology, in Jewish theology. Because all of Jewish theology speaks about the fact that there's a lot of hard work that we do tomorrow and we, re, we won't realize the benefits of it till tomorrow. Our concept of afterlife, our concept of resurrection, our concept that we have to give up certain things now to have greater things later, there is a tremendous orientation in Judaism that speaks about don't, don't, be, don't be dissuaded by the present before there is a glorious tomorrow. There is, you know, we all wait for Mashiach. There are all these kinds of concepts, right? So what we have to work out here is what is the distinction between Solomon and the king saying be careful about not living in the future, live in the present, and the fact that in Jewish theology there is an orientation towards looking at the future. This, God willing, is where we'll start off the next time around. I'll gladly take questions now. There was a fellow over there, I'll take his question because he started off before and I I asked him to... Hello? I don't know your name. Excuse me? Yassi. Okay. So I'll take somebody else's question in the meantime. Yes.
No way. No way. In other words, if you would read these eight verses, I would suggest that everybody gets a copy of the book. Right? It's a very beautiful book. But I would suggest that you get a copy of the book with some kind of, uh, of a translation. Because like this, just like I said before at the beginning of the class, that when the sages saw the book, they wanted to bury it because they were afraid that people would ju- it would never be a tool of growth. That's exactly what will happen to you if you read it without any real commentary. Right? Everything that I've, I've, you know, that I've presented over here has been culled okay, from about 10, 15 different commentaries on the verses. Cho- I choosing the things that I feel are the most relevant you know, to, to us today. Right. But you won't find it just on the surface like that. Right. Yeah. Remember the passage of crashing after falling from the reason that I, I could see that on the one hand, so that I I don't make the same mistakes again or fall into the same trap. But it doesn't allow for renewal. That the thing that I'm dealing with, if it was a person, maybe that person had a spiritual awakening during the Go over your question again. In other words, something that that you took on as being real and qualitative and wasn't. Okay. All right, I get your question. Now I understand your question. Okay, so so let me let me okay so let me answer your question. What you what you what you're what you're asking is a very good question. It's an excellent question. It's an excellent question. We we didn't speak about this. This relates more to the ne- to the second class, but I'll just give you a brief overview of it. If you notice, Solomon the king uses the expression of Tachas Hashemesh, under the sun. It's a very peculiar expression. I have it as a title of a tape. Somebody that saw my tape list told me that I was off the wall for using such a title. What is it supposed to mean, under the sun? What's this concept of under the sun? So the commentaries explain that there are two realms. There is the natural, physical realm, and then there is the spiritual realm. Most of, if not all of what Solomon the King is speaking about in terms of the concepts of illusion and reality is where we attach, okay, we attach a real definition of vibrant life to physical realms. And basically what Solomon the King is saying is There is no renewal, there is no revival in something that to begin with is his essence is materialistic. There is no real renewal. There is no real revival. However, in the things that are above the sun, when you're entering into life being defined in spiritual realms, yes, there there can be true birth. There there can be true change. 
there there can be revival and so on and so forth and therefore the example that you're giving is a very good one okay? but it's of a different realm in other words what Solomon the king is speaking about over here is don't attribute to physical realms okay, all of these glorious things like we've defined them because as much as they appear as being vibrant and constantly renewing themselves and so on and so forth no, there is no renewal under the sun there are modifications and changes and different applications, but there isn't any real vibrancy of constant new life under the sun. There is above the sun, though. What does it mean above the sun? In spiritual matters. In other words, once a person enters into the spiritual realm, in the spiritual realm, it's a whole different ball game. In the spiritual realm, we talk about growth, cumulative growth, change, progression, and that's really part of the answer of what we're going to do in the next class when we talk about how come in Jewish theology there is a perspective of looking to a glorious future. Because under the sun there isn't a future that's better than the present. But above the sun there is renewal and there is change. All right? But we'll explain that more next time. Yeah. Yeah, you got your question now? Or was it answered already? Oh, wonderful. Tremendous. Yes. It's a good question. And I, at this point... I would have to I would have to plead ignorance on that question. I'm I'm fairly confident that in a future chapter he's going to deal with it, but I haven't gotten to it yet, so to speak. It's a possibility, but I'd like to see more more information on it before I give an answer to it. That's an excellent question. Yeah. Once a person is working in spiritual realms, the the boundaries and the you know and those kinds of things, there's possibility of change. There are no guarantees. Right. I, th- I think that uh, I, I think there's a misunderstanding over here. When I say that a person reaches the spiritual realm, I'm not talking about a person not living in the physical world. Not at all. A person is living in the physical world, but the person the person is is living by the inner meaning of life within the context of the physical world. 
right? And it's the combination of both that helps a person grow. If a person would be totally absent from the physical world, then there is no growth left. But it's, it's the ability to be able to integrate that inner meaning within the context of the physical world that we live in that makes the spiritual advancement. No, no, not at all. No. We talk about the world to come being a place where a person can't grow anymore. But in this world, a person is constantly, is constantly deepening and developing the consciousness of the spiritual realm and constantly making choices of how to integrate the spiritual and physical in the ways that, they're in, that they were meant to be integrated with each other. The spiritual realm means in this world, not in the world. Right. No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. I'm not speaking about the world to come after life at all, no. Okay. I have to check it out. I have to check it out. Honestly, I'm I'm ignorant of it. God willing, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. I, I, I can't answer the question properly at this point, but we'll get to it. No, it's, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's a good question. Okay, one last question, and I've I got to go home. You had said at the very beginning, you said that things that are not reality don't last, and that's how you know they're not reality. Right. What is reality, and what does last, other than Okay, so this is what we're going to get into next time, honestly, when we talk about the whole concept of future. There's no question that there, there, there are plenty of trappings in power. There's no question. But power has to be part of a person's repertoire of function. Because because he because he because he has to have discipline in his life. Discipline is the concept is the Jewish concept of power. Wealth doesn't have to be in a person's life. Okay, so power is indispensable. Wealth is not. So if wealth is not indispensable and it does have it does have a risk factor involved in it, that's why Solomon the king says, if I'd have a choice, I wouldn't opt for it. All right, we'll stop here.